0: hello welcome to film trace this is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception we pick either a new re- uh, new release film on streaming uh we might do movie theaters when they come back right um which may to be never uh but yeah so it's a new movie either new to streaming uh, or just new in general what do we have this week for film
1: trace we are delving into uh, newish film territory. Technically, this movie did get a abbreviated uh, theatrical release back in the early part of 2020. Was it released like the first weekend of March? I believe
0: it was right, right when the pandemic was taking off. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, and uh, I think yeah, it was the, the second weekend of March was like the last official death knell of the box office. And uh, the movie is First Cow uh, from Auteur Kelly Reichert. She is best known probably for uh, the movie Wendy and Lucy, starring Michelle Williams and her dog that goes missing. Um, but uh, she has had a pretty healthy career carving out this niche role as a quiet, slow core filmmaker. Um, and slow cinema, as it's been dubbed, uh, has uh, had a lot of uh I don't know, kind of ups and downs, uh, similar to, I would imagine, the trajectory of the mumblecore genre back in the 2000s. Um, But it's uh, Kelly Reichert's keeping it, keeping that train going. And uh, she perhaps uh, got highest profile when her debut movie, Old Joy, uh, became uh, inductee to the Criterion Collection. So this is her new film that, uh, exactly as the title implies, follows uh, not the first cow president but the first cow <laughs> uh that appeared in small town oregon in uh the 18 was it 1820s i believe it was the 1820s decade. yeah
0: yeah yeah um, and
1: uh, and i mean th- that's pretty much it you've got a you've got two main characters uh that uh both uh are in- invested in using this cow's milk to pursue their dream of uh opening a bakery or restaurant uh, in its kind of untamed territory, right? And uh, the lead actors are Joe Magaro and um, uh, Orion Lee. Uh, Toby Jones also has a key supporting role. It is uh, another uh, A24 film, and yet it goes against most of what A24 has been known
0: well, for. Wait, what do you mean by that? What, do you, what does it go against? I want to know. We're, <laughs> what, we, we should preface this, that we chose this film. Well, partly chose it because we're both big A24 fans. Like, I love... Pretty much anything they put out, I will watch because it has the A24 label on it. Now, again, they don't produce the films. Most often they just distribute them. But they have a really keen eye for great artists. Um, And why do you so but A24 does kind of have a house style, right? It's usually very it's hard to describe. It's like cinematography is super important. Most of the most of their films, Mm -hmm. they're very flashy in the sense uh, in an artistic sense so a lot of like film Twitter people latch onto them. Um, the Lighthouse. I mean, you could go down the list of the ones that they've released and you're gonna recognize the look right away. Yes. Uncut Gems, Ladyburg, uh, Moonlight, Ex Mahina, Midsummer, The Witch. They all sort of have this very vibrant sort of look to them. So how do you think First Cow kind of plays against that sort of trope that they've set up or house style?
1: Well, I mean it, it's right there in the director's name i mean kelly reichert <laughs> is no uh spring chicken and she's no uh kind of incendiary new voice in the medium uh, she's been around for a while right uh old joy came back, came out back in was it oh uh oh nine, oh 06 and yeah, so oh six. yeah and even before that she was known for doing short films she's uh a kind of controversial instructor over at uh, bard college <laughs> and, and uh there's some fun rate my professor reviews of her on there and i mean it's just like she is very confident in what she does and she does not do flashbang like edgy material she does very stately and uh quiet filmmaking yes and it's it's not everyone's cup of tea uh it's not i mean in one so so let's start with the the conception of this right we've got yeah, yeah. the basics down let's let's do the trace okay yeah so this movie or- originated actually from a novel this is the first movie i believe we're doing that's an official adaptation of another yep. work uh for this podcast and so she has a long-term collaborator john raymond who uh wrote Um, Night Moves, which was, uh, uh, did you, have you, oh, first I should just make sure that Dan, you and I are on the same page. Have you seen any of her movies besides this one and Wendy and Lucy?
0: I have not. Night Moves is high on my list though.
1: Okay. Yes. So, uh, Night Moves, which is probably was her biggest profile one if- Only because uh, it had a trio of big name actors, Dakota Fanning, Jesse Eisenberg, and Peter Sarsgaard in the lead roles as uh, eco-terrorists. And that sounds flashy, but it's not it's it's very slow moving uh like her other movies M- Michelle Williams was her her main colla- uh, acting collaborator for Wendy and Lucy and the only other western she made besides First Cow if you would call it a western uh Meek's Cutoff back in 2010 um but John Raymond uh worked with her specifically on kind of some of these bigger ones he he wrote Old Joy he collaborated on Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cutoff and then he wrote night moves and uh so then this movie First Cow is adapted from his novel called The Half Life. And so it's the first movie probably from the Kelly Riker series that uh had a life of its own before she Conceived it with John Raymond, and even then, it went through a a, a big change, right? Like this was a novel yeah. that was written in four parts that took place over the course of several years, and Riker knows that, like, when she needs to make a movie, she's going to make it small, and I respect that her about about her greatly. This, I don't think, this movie would have worked. At all, or perhaps in your view, it would have been even worse if it had tried to, you know, do the chronicling thing. I think that so rarely works in movies where they try to speed through decades uh, of the lives of the characters, and instead we're and, just focusing on one moment.
0: And she sort of refuses to do that because, in like a lot of the and sort of the interviews about this, how this movie came to be, you know, she had read this novel even before she made Old Joy. And had loved it so much and, but, but could not figure out a way in to that longer narrative. Um, and she even told Jonathan to hold the novel that she wanted to do it eventually. And I think they just kept working on it. And then eventually they came across, they called the script first cow. There was no cow in the, in the novelization at all. <laughs> right. Um, and in one interview, uh, we're just getting asked a question by the crowd. He's like, you know, how did you come up with this cow motif uh, in the film And she didn't recall and (laughs) she just couldn't remember why there was a cow in it. And I thought that that was very fascinating because, you know, it's called First Cow. It takes center stage on some of the marketing for the most part. But when you get into the film itself, it's definitely about these two men and their sort of uh, newly formed bond and friendship. And sure, the cow is there and it's an important plot point. But it's not really kind of as in your face as I think the A24 marketing made it to be. Right. Uh, And I think I just thought that was pretty an interesting sort of play on it. A24 is actually pretty infamous for I would call it maybe um, radical or guerrilla marketing where they take an aspect of a movie or a plot and push it out front. Uh, And that's not actually what the movie's about. The sort of paradigm of that would be it comes at night which they marketed as an apocalyptic sort of horror film right? Uh, that it had some sort of supernatural or monster element. And of course, if you've seen it, there is none. Uh, and so that got a cinema score of a D plus. Uh, I think here, I think people know Kelly and I think they know what her films are about. So there probably was a little bit less of that with the crowd that went to go see it, but there definitely was this sort of um, uh, like iconography of the cow. That's not really in the movie at all. Uh, and I, I thought that was interesting. And You know, you can tell that the story is way broader um, and there's a lot more narrative tentacles out there uh, within the film itself that we only hear a little bit like going to China uh, and starting this business and sort of their past and being on the run. But we only really get about a, a week of their lives, I think. Right. Like, how long does this movie take place over? Um, besides the prologue, of course. Right. Which is in present day, which I thought was a really interesting way to open the film, mm-hmm. um, where you essentially, and I think I'm reading this right, and spoilers, of course, but it's the first two minutes of the movie. Uh, a young woman walking a dog. Is that—is that her old dog, Lucy? Maybe? Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It could be. Uh, comes across uh, some bones uh, of two men holding hands, right? And then it kicks you off into the past in the story um, and I thought like, I'm assuming that that's them, right? Is that the right assumption that I'm making?
1: Yes. And that's, that's an interesting, interesting way to kind of go a little deeper into this story because I think that, uh, once again, spoiler alert for anybody that is for whatever reason, listening to this and still interested in seeing first cow, because I do think that, um, When I saw that opening, I automatically thought like this is strange for Kelly Riker to choose a frame story because I assumed that that's what they were going for. But then when we never return to the present by the end of the film, but the framing cinematography, the graceful uh, kind of ending, even if abrupt, um, that it comes to at the end, everything clicks together, especially and I think the, the probably third most important shot uh, aside from the bones laying there in present day and then uh, the two main characters laying there uh, at the end of the film is a shot that's just prior to that. It's a shot of the young man who earlier in the film um, gets uh, cut in line uh, to get uh, a donut that one of the that the characters have made with the cow's milk. And these are yeah. these are oily cakes, as they call them, that are just uh it's, it 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 shoots off their popularity, but then of course everything goes wrong, and they're on the run. And uh, we find out that this kid, this like maybe sixteen year old kid, um, that really wanted an oily cake uh, and never got one, um, ends up being the one that the last one that is still you know trying to hunt them at the end of the film. And so it's it's very telling that like she does this so elegantly and yet so firmly as well. Uh, one review that I read, I believe it was. Um, Allison Shoemaker from RogerEbert.com put it well where um, we we typically get either the, in, as far as indie cinema goes, the very open ended kind of aloof ending that can be, you know, both profound but also very admittedly frustrating in many ways. Um, yeah. And you could read it that way. But then you could also read it as very definitive as kind of you read it where it's like obviously that's that's who our two guys are and that's exactly how they how they died is that final shot of them resting in the woods after one of them had been already injured and another one uh, doesn't know where to go. And uh, they feel like they're basically just running out the clock. and But the the the, the genius of Kelly Reichardt is that she lets you have your cake and eat it too. You can have it as the open-ended ending or as the definitive one. Uh, she
0: she does do that well. Yes. I would give her that. From an indie perspective, it's definitely a very it feels very indie, but there is this polish to this. And I think that's just because of her experience from doing this for so long. Mm -hmm. And she has a confidence as a filmmaker to really do it in exactly the way she wants to. She's not leaning back on some genre uh, or some sort of, um, sort of archetype of an indie film or anything like that. She's really doing exactly what she wants to do in her own voice. And I think that's one example of that. And another thing too, about this film, just thinking about like how it came to be um, and sort of going into the production side of things you know, she had a very she had this um, uh, novel as a source to work with, and she obviously picked and choose what she wanted to use from that. But she also really had this very clear vision uh, of a Western film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of, a, you know, that's the genre that you would probably place this in. But it's a completely non-traditional Western. One, it's in the middle of the dense, almost rainforest like uh, forests of, around Portland, Oregon. Uh, so it doesn't have that deserty sagebrush feel to it at all. It's very claustrophobic as opposed to the desert. It's very wide open. Right. Um, she and she infuses this sort of stuff, I think, way before she even w- was shooting. Like she has this um, method, uh, I think, when making a film where she just has this almost buffet of ideas, a smorgasbord of like concepts that she brings to the film, uh, even choosing the 1820s. Like she talked about how in the 1840s, when Meek's cutoff takes place. There's photography that she can look at. There's sort right. of examples and images she can look at. 1820s Oregon, there aren't any, and so she, was, she, was, she specifically chose that as a sort of more gray area uh, to work in. Uh, and just being in Portland in Oregon, how many like Western films take place in Oregon during this time? No, I mean, can you name another <laughs> no. one? Like exactly. <laughs> no. So she's definitely. You know, she's unique in terms of what she's choosing to adapt here, but also her vision that she brings to it is 100% her own, which is exactly, you know, kind of what you think you're going to get with an indie filmmaker. But I think it's rare to see somebody this confident uh, and this skilled in doing just that pre production conception side of things. Uh, that's the thing that really blew me away, especially not just watching it. You can tell it feels like a very well researched and meticulous period piece yeah uh, but also when talking about the film and the actors and what they went through to do this this was not a small endeavor you know we call it a small film or whatever and in an indie film but this kind of felt like a like almost a bigger version of that um and you know we one thing we didn't mention is sort of the budget on something like this um, yes. so her other films i think meek's cut off her creative what was the other one uh, certain, Cre- certain woman yeah mm-hmm. Short woman, she said specifically in an interview, she didn't state what the budget was for this film, but she said essentially that I, I can't physically make a movie for that budget anymore. Mm-hmm. And that budget was two million dollars. And she basically went on to, to talk about the shooting schedule for this one versus another film. This is the first time she's ever done a five day, a five day week shoot. So they basically did 30 days of shooting, but only five days per week. So a little bit more relaxed, not shooting seven days a week. Uh, but you're thinking about what's the budget for something like this? If it's not 2 million, what do you think it would be? Like if you had to guess.
1: I mean, I I mean just based on what you would take to to recreate an era like this, it has it, there's no way it can be any less than 1 million, right? I mean, this is this is really I, I don't know. I mean, I I oh. the, the biggest name is Toby Jones, so he couldn't have cost that much. No, <laughs> no. Yeah.
0: But and yeah, and the other people involved are, you know, they're phenomenal journeyman actors to some degree, but like not big names. They're going to have a big pull, Yeah. And I think in a 24, probably, I don't know when a 24 got involved either. Like if they were involved early, I'm sure they gave them a lot of extra cash to sort of finish this thing off. But they had to have that up front to even think about doing this shoot in Oregon. Uh, so it's, it, and the reason I bring that up is that it, the, the film does have this sort of, like you said, it walks this fine line between indie And maybe in a more established adult drama from a major studio, like there's aspects of it that are there. Mm -hmm. But there's always that melodrama that you would get in, say, a focus feature movie that was shot for 30 million dollars. Those are all sort of sanded off and sort of sculpted off more likely. And to give you a little bit more of um, an interesting and rich layered sort of film uh i never once did i say to myself well this is like maudlin or too much like right. that does that that vocabulary doesn't come into play with her no um but at well, the same time that has that intricacy as well so i think that's one of the things that really stuck out to me when she was sort of talking about this film overall
1: yeah and one thing to consider perhaps uh, that your parallel to focus features is making me think is like so much of those focus features period dramas are focused on the elite the intellectual the the wealthy, right? The the noble and royalty. And so, yes, of course, recreating all of that is going to take some real cash. And one thing that's beautiful about what Reichert's done with First Cow is that not only is she going for something way smaller, um, but then even when you think in terms of Westerns, like uh, modern day Westerns are still just like so recycled and that they even were back in the golden era of Hollywood. They were so recycled that it was... You know, an over reliance on the 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 archetypes, and so she's like building new archetypes here about like the Oregon Trail. Because like when we think about the Oregon Trail, which is ironically what Meeks cutoff is about, we think about you know the like you said, like the vast deserts and all that, and so then you think about like the 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 you know reconstructing the wagons and uh all the extras that are involved with something like that but here you've got like the destination like it's it, I, it, I definitely thought while i was watching this film like huh all those years of my youth playing oregon trail i never actually thought like what oregon looked like when they got there <laughs> And she's what finally she's finally oh giving this to us, and mm-hmm. and also doing it in a way where it's like it's it's believable, and also it's uh, it, it's the it's the everyday people. Like you've got like trappers, and like the main character is a cook. Another main character is an Asian immigrant on the run from uh, a, 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 a fugitive from Russian immigrants. It's 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 such a like a gap filling um, trajectory that she's going for here, and it because. Uh, there's so little available to, to con- create it. She comes up with it on her own through that, you know, hardcore research and through the, the elegant cinematography. I also think that speaking back on your point on um, trying to make this, you know, walk that fine line between the stately focused features film and the uh, kind of uh, rough and tumble, small micro budget um, indie movie is uh, her obsession with the 4-3 aspect ratio. Like, yes. This, yeah. this is this is something that it, it really took me a minute. I remember seeing Wendy and Lucy and Meeks cut off in theater and especially Meeks cutoff when you're literally like watching the wide open terrain of the Oregon Trail and thinking like, oh, I wish this was wider. But she she purposely like pulls back on that and she's like, no, think smaller. This is about the people. This is not about the landscape. And I think that's it's beautiful when you get, can get past it.
0: Well, it's funny you you bring that up because she said that in some interview um, that there, you know, this is a western, but there's going to be no western shots, mm-hmm. so there's no shots just of the landscape for itself, right? Which she went out of her way to do that, and so she's definitely, you know, has her very sort of unique, specific voice that she wanted to bring to this. She also said that, um, you know, we call this a western, and obviously it's it's sort of a unique environment, but it's less a sort of moving from east to west. And more sort of far east to west Mm, where a lot of the influence is uh, from Asia and Russia as opposed to from like Pennsylvania or New York. Um, So I think the overall sort of message there is this is really a unique conception and unique production at the end of the day. Like this is not a normal film that gets made uh, on a yearly basis. Like this is something pretty special on that level. Um, In terms of I think a, a couple other things in terms of the production like in casting um, just tidbits that they came across, um, John McGarrow never met her in person before he showed up on set. So he basically auditioned, uh, solely through Skype, uh, and video sort of, uh, messaging, um, apps and sort of, he sort of knew who th- knew her through people. So he was a little bit connected and he knew of her, uh, or he knew of her, I should say, uh, Orion Lee was totally different. Uh, So she went through hundreds of actors uh, and what she said essentially was that um, unfortunately a lot of um, uh, actors of Asian descent get pigeonholed into certain types and she found that she couldn't really she couldn't really grasp what a lot of the actors were capable of because a lot of their roles were very sort of stereotypical um, Asian roles. And so she really took a long time to figure out. Um, This character and Orion, I think, just stood out. I think he read like four or five times for her in person to really get this. So it was a kind of a it's an interesting sort of um, you would think that uh, in terms of casting and finding people, it would be more like the John uh, Magaro sort of role or on an indie film, Mm -hmm. kind of somebody, you know, a little bit kind of in your circle. Um, but with o- Orion Lee, it was more like a traditional sort of Hollywood casting situation. So this is a not a, this is not an easy film to make. No, uh, I think is what it comes down to. And, um, you know, I think that does definitely show on the final product. Um, the four, three aspect ratio ah, ever since what was the movie that came out? Uh, lighthouse. Was that lighthouse in four, three? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the First, one of the first movies I saw in the theater recently in four, three, and I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> it's focus. Hard. It's hard
1: to shake. Yeah.
0: I couldn't even, uh, there's just something about the widescreen to me that just makes it cinematic. Uh, and I think Kelly is adamant about not making things cinematic. Right. And I think that that plays out not only through the production, but also through the writing, uh, the characterization and the content of the film. Um, I think she just has a vision not only of this story, but of what filmmaking is all about and its purpose. And she hits that point over and over and over again, uh, I think, in this film. And um, I I believe I think in my gut, it's kind of like you hate it or you love it. And if you do sort of like her vision, I think her film philosophy, then you're going to like love everything she's going to do because it has those repeatable the slow cinema genre elements in it that really tell a specific type of story. But if you're probably like me, who's kind of like uh what would you call my sort of style when it comes to genre? Genre Nazi is what Pura, yeah, puritanical. It? <laughs> yeah. Puritanical with, with genre, <laughs> it can be very unsettling. Um and I would say if you know, if you tried to show this movie to an average person who is not super into film, they would have real trouble with it. Oh, yeah. Right from the start. Um, and I think that 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 speaks to something. I don't know what that speaks to exactly, um, but this is a film for film nerds. It's yes. not a film for the general audience at all. Uh, some movies can cross over. This definitely could never cross over. It just does not have those elements in there. It doesn't have that sort of language. Um, in there that would connect with an average moviegoer. Um, Maybe it's a good time to start talking about the release. Like, what? how did this thing come out? How did it roll out? What was the reception?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because, obviously, not only because of the pandemic, uh, interrupting things on the traditional release side, but, uh, you know, Riker, it's interesting looking at her in the interview circuit after that whole mess, and now it arriving on VOD. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, she is... She said that she is thankful that people are going to have a way to see it. Uh, but she has said that she's a control freak uh, and would wish that she could, you know, go to everybody's TV settings and make sure that it was the perfect amount of light and, you know, motion smoothing and all that stuff. Uh, but what's probably most interesting about even before the whole rollout on VOD thing is that um, they were planning uh, on, you Having, you know, it, it was desirable by a lot of uh, film festivals, including Venice. Um, but uh, A24 made the decision to skip um, uh, Venice and as well as Toronto. Is that correct? Uh,
0: yeah, I think so. Or yeah. uh, definitely Venice. I, and I can't figure out why. Because when is Venice? August, or September? Yeah, September it's like off. the it's before Toronto, right? Uh, and Venice would be you know it's a big international it's an international film festival um, that's pretty massive and it kind of kicks off the fall season. Um, I, I can't figure out why they wouldn't want to show it to international. Do you think it wouldn't be as palatable to European people that are going to go to the festival? What do you think?
1: Possibly. I also think that I mean Riker does not seem to like to play the game, so to speak. Uh, and yeah. Uh, I mean, it it, it 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 did premiere back at Telluride, um, and I think that kind of she's she understands that if she wants if pe if she wants people to see the movie, she's got to play the game to some degree, um, and uh, so she'll you know do whatever A twenty four wants. So it is more of a question of from A twenty four side of things if they you know had say over where they put it out. I mean, maybe it's just. Uh, a feeling of like it's a it, it's a quiet film and they you know say what you will about a24s house style as mentioned earlier in the po- in the podcast but like they i think they get auteurs like they've also they're also known yeah. to very much believe in the uh the the director doing what they think is best. And so it's very possible that, you know, they came to some kind of agreement where it's like, yeah, let's premiere it at the festival, get some, get some hype, but there's no reason to, to send it through the circuit, so to speak.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, when this thing did premiere, I mean, the critics adored it, right? Like you're looking Mm -hmm. at like 96%, all critics going Rotten Tomatoes, 8.3 out of 10, uh, which is very, very high, especially that actual rating of 8.3 top critics, even higher 97%, 9.1 out of 10. And sometimes with the indie films, you get like 30 reviews. Now, this is 130 review average. Uh, So beloved by critics. Uh, Audiences, not so much. Uh, (laughs) 56%. But again, it's tough with the audience score here. It's probably a small sample. I forgot the sample size on this one um, because not a lot of people are able to see in the theaters because it opens up. Pandemic hits pretty hard two weeks later. So 56% score from the audience, 66 actual score. Nonetheless, the people who did vote didn't like it. Uh, but then you look at other audience sort of barometers here. Letterboxd, which is film nerds, four out of five. That's uh, basically, I call it an 80 out of 100. Very, very high. Yeah. R- r- rarely do you see a film get above 75 to 80. Uh, that's like masterpiece territory yeah. for that group of people. Yeah. Uh, and then IMDb, which is your average person, 7.1 out of 10, um, which is actually, I thought, was very high for IMDb. Because yeah, I- if you... Right. Related it to the RT audience score, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty, you'd think like a 6.5 or something like that.
1: IMDb is interesting because, yes, it's full of uh, plebs, as you might say, but it's also full, <laughs> like legit full of people that watch tons of movies. And yeah. I, so I think they're also a highly impressionable audience. So if, if, if the critics tell them it's good, then they might, <laughs> that might skew that, their score.
0: That is very true. <laughs> um, and then when this thing did open March 6, 2020, uh, going back to our wildland roots, diving into the box office real quick uh four theaters i think i've always i've always mentioned these four theaters lincoln square angelica and then arc light hollywood and landmark uh, in la uh that's the four theaters that you open a super arty film on uh, and you do that to get a barometer how's this thing going to do it did 81k opening weekend which puts it at like a 20k per theater average uh, basically you know if i'm like a studio executive like that it does 20k per theater in those four theaters it's going nowhere mm-hmm. so like for something like this It's already arty. It's already a New York, LA film. For to break out at least 40k per theater or higher to push it out. They might have done 500 theaters world uh, or nationwide or US and Canada, but I I don't see it really going above like 200 theaters to be honest with you. No. Um, And then the the whole run was basically cut short, so we can't use the final total as any sort of um, measure of how it's doing. But I think the opening was pretty muted for an art film like this um i think the people that did see it like the film the critics uh and the letterbox crew the film twitter people absolutely love this film but that's a small little bubble i don't really see it expanding out ever um what about the critics what about some positively negative takes on this thing
1: yeah it's interesting to to see um what this looks like especially considering award season uh because we we have a long ways to go, and also the Oscars have been postponed um, because of the pandemic. So whether or not people remember this um, will come nomination time will be interesting. Because yeah, it was it was kind of tough to find some negative reviews. Even the negative reviews, uh, kind of like it sounded similar to what you were saying, Dan, how you personally felt. Where it's like on the one hand, this isn't for me, but on the other hand, like there's so much to respect about it because like how do you how do you really hate on something that is so meticulously well crafted and fills uh, a hole that's basically been Never filled in the history of cinema. So, yeah. uh, you have the, obviously the positives. Uh, you know, uh, David Sims of the Atlantic called it uh, a masterwork of indie cinema. A tale that's both charming and unsparing, suffused with equal measures of wonder and dread. I would be risk remiss not to mention that I think you know, apart from the two central characters, uh, the moment of the film that just like hooked me and made me fall in love with it was uh, the big bearded guy bringing his baby to the bar <laughs> and yeah. getting teased and then I mean just watch it for that scene alone it's a absolutely beautiful scene um and it's a a good example of what sims says there Anne hornaday of the washington post um uh, talked to give talked about it as a jaundiced portrait of greed racism and nativism at its Whoa. most dishonest and chauvinistic uh, nice. it was so interesting how many different layers you can get uh, from this movie because I I didn't even think about like the the capitalism parable aspect of it until oh yeah reading reading about it uh, because I was so focused on the characters themselves but I mean it's yeah it's it's ruthless in many ways um, negative reviews uh, people called it you know protracted uh, with like a small rush of suspense that's Richard Brody of the New Yorker who um,
0: I uh, have a weird love hate relationship uh, with.
1: yeah I uh, he's he's a weird guy man and he's I, super <laughs> weird it's like when
0: he's on and like I love his opinion it's like the exact opinion that no one else has but like 80 percent of the time it's sort of I hate everything he's
1: yeah it's just like that that's just a good example of a quote that just mi- like misunderstands the whole purpose of slow cinema
0: it's a very short review he only did a paragraph review <laughs> yeah Just
1: <laughs> and Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle a very different kind of idiosyncratic yes <laughs> um, yes he's more of like yeah
0: he's like the old he's more like a film scholar Yeah. Like, he's like an old school guy he's,
1: he's super old school he says uh, well we have a pretty good idea as to where they're going to end up at the beginning <laughs> it's like <laughs> well, duh. I mean no come on it, like, like the people complaining about knowing how Titanic ends I don't know yeah uh, <laughs> Uh yeah, so it, 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 like I said, but even those th- those negative quotes were hard to find. Like the, it's so overflowing. Um, just absolutely phenomenal um it will be interesting to see going back to the box office uh angle real quick to see because c- clearly it's a critical success but um i'm curious dan what you think uh with this new vod model 1499 or are, are we the only ones that that, that paid that yeah to watch dude we're like
0: one of maybe 500 <laughs> people that have paid to see this movie like this is like i can't imagine another thing about the release that really blows my mind why they didn't do venice it's like if you don't do Venice, then you're not trying to go for awards. Right. Right? Like you can do Toronto and stuff, and maybe, but Venice is where you get that. I mean, that's how Joker won oh, all the awards it did, because right. it won Venice, right? Because that was the first kickoff. So it blows my mind that they wouldn't do that. Um, but I think A24 knew what this was. This is um a sort of calling card to the art film world and film critics that we are A24 we support great artists it was not a financial decision whatever whatsoever i mm-hmm. think it's almost like they wrote off the budget and everything with it as like a marketing cost to their studio yeah um i just there's no i mean if i'm looking at this like very business like um title sucks uh the trailers ridiculous so we have no idea what it's about and the film itself is basically <laughs> unmarketable and no one would see it and if they did see it they'd give it an f cinema score like if you release this to 2000 people I would say at most a D plus yeah. cinema score. Like there's no, no. and like, th- th- was there the intention there? I mean, she says herself, she never makes any money from a movie. This is sort of, um, this is a passion for her. This is a calling. Uh, this is what she wants to do and has done with her life. And you can kind of see that in the film, but it's not in any way uh, a marketable product for a, a group outside of like huge cities and art right. and film people. Like it's just not there. Um, and I think that for me, and one of the reasons I also hated Wendy and Lewis, uh, Lucy, um, is that I, for some reason, I love auteurs. I love people that take chances, but like to me, there's almost like a disrespect for the basic elements of storytelling here <laughs> that are like, and it's done on purpose. Yeah, to basically be like, oh, I don't need to do these things because. Either I'm too good for that, or no one needs to do them. But there's sort of a, a a pompousness to the entire film and the look of it, where you're sort of like, yeah, you're an amazing artist and you're super. You've surrounded yourself with great people, um, but you're telling a story at the end of the day. You're making a movie, uh, and there's sort of like, I don't know. It just it, it's it felt very. I'm trying to think of like what would be, um the parallel to this in maybe like a different art form, like music per se. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's ambient music, right? It
0: would be like, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, remember when the liars put out that album <laughs> concept <laughs> album about witches, yes. which I love because, and this is another thing too, about the medium with film, you know, I'm very much into genre work, like very, very good polished stuff. And I'm a little bit less into the experimental stuff, but with music, I'm the exact opposite. Uh, but I could see that if I put on that liar's record to an average person, they would might punch me in the face. Mm-hmm, right. Like, so it, it kind of has that punch me in the face element to it where it it's already it's so affected. Uh, and I mean, on the very basis of the entire film and every scene, it's so affected that I think for someone like me, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I don't and I think that would be a little bit more indicative of what the general audience would find.
1: I also think. It, we'd it, it'd be a good idea to mention the fact that this is and this is only tangentially related to what you're talking about, but it, it did make me think <laughs> of it. That this is the first Rikert movie we're getting, uh, post Me Too. Uh basically Me yeah. Too was on the rise when certain women came out. And there's lots of parallels there. I definitely recommend I recommend all of Rikert's work, obviously. I'm a fanboy. But uh <laughs> I definitely recommend certain women and to look at that as a parallel to this, which is a movie that has little to no female characters and yet because she and she already did that with meek's cutoff looking at it from uh the women's point of view on the oregon trail but here she's looking at male characters in such an unmasculine way in an inherently masculine genre and like it's so i think that was just that was enough to to get me really thinking and reckoning with you know what our basest impulses are when we consume cinema. And that yeah. was a, that's enough to like, say like, this is worthwhile. Not only is this worthwhile, but like I get joy watching it. Like the, the bearded guy with the baby in the bar. It's like, I, I like, I, I saw myself and yeah, anytime yeah. you see yourself in movies, that's when, you know, everything clicks and, uh, yeah. It, 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 there's gonna be collateral damage. There's gonna be people that see oh, this. Oh, absolutely, man, <laughs> and, and that's, just hate it. The, the only
0: way you can make great art is by pissing people off. I mean, that's the rule. Like, right. You can't do anything great unless you do that. Um. All right. That's first cow. Um. What an interesting movie. And I hope you guys do check it out. It's absolutely worth seeing. Um. Because it is a very rich layered film that is not any not like anything else you're going to see this year and you're you're home alone not doing anything so spend the 14 dollars and support an independent artist absolutely um
1: what do we got coming next week we are gonna head back into the time machine so to speak uh to look at a movie newly available to streaming this month uh a movie that uh, means something maybe but perhaps means nothing <laughs> it's a, a little movie called pineapple express by david gordon green
0: Uh, It's going to be awesome. Uh, Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace.